Hello, this is Disturbed Minds, and I'm your host, Maddie Day. Before we get into the story, I need to let you know that this is a true crime podcast, so some content may be difficult to hear or may be triggering for some listeners. Any especially disturbing stories will have further disclaimers. I am no expert, I am just fascinated by the darker side of humanity, and I enjoy discussing it with friends. I never intend to glamorize these perpetrators or their crimes, only to honor the victims and their memories. continuing my series of the different provinces and territories in Canada. It's the first territory one. It's in Nunavut. Um, But before we get too far into it, I want to say it does deal with domestic violence, and specifically domestic violence in Native communities. So, which also brings me to, I do want to acknowledge and say that every child matters, and we need to investigate, and we need to find their homes, and the I will get into more um, help for domestic violence uh, victims near the end, but I want to specifically mention the First Nations and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline in Canada. It's one eight five five two four two three three one zero, and it's twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. So. Normally I give a little background before getting right into it, but I'm going to do it a little differently this time, and I'm going to get right into the incident. Oh yes, I also want to say I tried to look up pronunciations, and I had a hard time finding them, so I'm going to try my best. Might get some wrong. I apologize ahead of time for that. So on June 25th, 2017, at approximately 8pm, 29-year-old Sandra Amaralik stabbed her partner, 30-year-old Howie Alec, in their home in Goja Haven. He was rushed to the local health center, but he died of his injuries later that evening. And she was 29 weeks pregnant with his child at the time. Damn, wonder what he did. Oh, wow. So... They had been together for about 10 years, and there were at least seven police reports of incidents, including him punching her twice in the stomach while she was pregnant with a different child, not the current pregnancy. She once woke up with a fractured cheekbone, bruised face, and some teeth missing in a hospital. Like, she woke up in the hospital like that. 
and he once grabbed her and punched her while the baby was in her MUT, which is a traditional Inuit parka. Unfortunately, the charges were usually dropped because she was afraid of going to court and what he would do if she testified against him, which is very typical, unfortunately. He was about 35 centimeters taller than her, so quite a bit taller. And the day of the incident, he was acting really strange, very aggressive, calling her names. She defended herself by punching him in the head a couple times. He shouted at her to just stab him, to just end it. Justice Sue Charlesworth, who oversaw the trial, said, quote, She was facing the kitchen counter, and he was only two or three feet away. So she grabbed the knife that was going to be used to cut the pepperoni for the pizza, then turned around and stabbed him in the chest, although she was aiming for his arm. End quote. Imagine getting gaslit into stabbing somebody. Right? Like, it's just crazy. And I know, like, I shouldn't be surprised, but I still just read stories like this, and when you hear the details, it's still shocking. Kind of just hard to, like, leave, I think, even though we, like, care about, like, all the incidents uh, financially, emotionally, probably she wasn't prepared to leave. Yeah, well, and I did mention this. I get into, I won't get into as much detail in this one because I get into a lot of detail in a previous episode, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but just the details of the psychology of what, like, happens to the victims... And I heard one statistic, and I know I've said it before, I think I got it from Paul Holes on his podcast, uh, Jensen and Holes the Murder Squad. I believe it was him that said it, but the most dangerous time for domestic violence victims is when they leave, and it takes domestic violence victims an average of seven times before they successfully leave. Can't. That's wild. I can understand why, but at the same time, just... Yeah, it's it's so unfortunate, and then it's also unfortunate because, like, it's so possible. Yeah, it just really can happen to anyone, and everybody thinks, oh, not me, not me, but you never know. And there's lots of ways they use to get to you to get you to trust them and then by the time you realize what's going on it's a lot harder to get out like it's not like this behavior comes out on the first date they're really good at making it not until you're too invested well and even think about the additional factor of her being indigenous like we already have the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls uh like final report and just the fact all the things that are said in there and how like colonization and intergenerational trauma has like really affected that community um which might have uh led to either her abuser becoming an abuser uh just because of that trauma which still is not an excuse Mm -hmm. Um, or even for her because of those like standards that are put on by these white colonizers like for her to be in this like submissive position just And they're in an isolated community in Nunavut. It's not like they're in a populated city where there's 
plenty of resources either. Now, I don't know for sure if she had tried to leave beforehand. I don't know, but still. So, initially, she was charged with second-degree murder. However, Justice Charlesworth, who I previously quoted, rejected that case. So, her defense team was seeking a lesser charge of manslaughter, resting on self-defense. On January 27th, 2021, she was acquitted of all charges after a judge found she acted in self-defense. Judge Charlesworth said, quote, I am left with no doubt that Ms. Amaralak suffered significantly for years as a victim of intimate partner abuse. She also said her use of force was not out of proportion to the threat of violence she was experiencing at the time of the incident, end quote. The only thing with that is I think he said the incident happened in 2017. Like, that's a hot minute. That's not a reasonable amount of time between, like, being charged and getting acquitted. Four years of this woman's life gone. And then think of, like, the two children that she has just took way too long, is what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they had at least two kids together, but... I don't know for sure, but I feel like I read somewhere that it was more than that. Yeah, I don't know details about that either, of where the kids were, because most of what I read is about um, when she was found not guilty, or she was acquitted. Um, The judge also said that she found that Ms. Emerlick, I think I've pronounced it differently every single time, but hopefully one of the times it was right, (laughs) Um, she found that she was trying to protect herself and her baby when she stabbed him. And given the history of abuse and her vulnerable state at the time, being pregnant, Uh, Self-defense was obviously accepted, and she was also found not guilty of manslaughter. So the judge didn't just find that it wasn't second degree, she also just found straight up not guilty. As it should be. Definitely. The judge also said, quote, We will not know how the course of this family's history might have changed had Miss Amaralak had the support to follow through with testifying against Mr. Aluk in any of the trials for charges of intimate intimate partner violence that were brought against him, end quote. So, she, the judge is basically pointing out, had the supports been available, this might not have to have ended this way. If she had had supports within her community, she might have been able to rely on them and not end up having to kill him to protect herself. So her lawyer, Alison Crow, Alison Crow, told CBC News that this is the first time in Nunavut history that an abused woman's self-defense claim has led to acquittal in a homicide case. And I know everyone thinks of Nunavut as small, um, but it actually has the highest violent crime rate per capita in Canada. So, Damn. yeah, so this is this is a big deal. It's not like, 
Well, it's tiny, so there's no one there, so violent crime doesn't really happen, so it makes sense that this is the first time. But no, it's not that rare for violent crime to happen, so it's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal regardless, but you know what I mean. Well, think of, like, the cost of living up there. It's so high, and, like, one of the main stressors for abusers is financial. So, like, think of that family's financial situation, and then men are expected to be the high earner, and them having two children doesn't give me hope that maybe she had a job, especially if he was abusive. So that financial burden went on him and probably led to a lot of the incidents. Yeah, like a a jug of like Tropicana orange juice. I saw a picture. It's like three, maybe four dollars here. It's around twenty dollars there. Because it costs so much to get the products there. So also, sure, pay is often a lot more up there if you're working up there, but it all depends where you're working, who you're working for, of course, and it's never quite that simple. Well, and think about it too, like, the land in which they reside on is probably one that they're moved to by colonizers, and they probably, or they had land that was a lot more prosperous and closer to, like, where they could get resources, and then they were probably forcibly moved up there. If you look at the history of those lands, um, it's very common. Colonization, man, is the root of all these problems. Yeah, pretty much any issue in North America can be traced back to it. At least North America, and Africa, for sure. They seriously screwed over Africa. Well, even think of, like, the relationship between indigenous women and men. Like, that relationship was severely harmed in colonization where women had, like, it's unlike gender roles in the Western society. It was, this is, women tend to be keepers of water, of children, and, like, that was their role, but it wasn't enforced on them. It was... I am the carer of this, this is what I do for my community, and then men had their roles, and then two-spirited individuals had, like, an intersection of both as knowledge keepers, and so you destroyed that entire structure and how women and men kind of interact with one another through colonization, and then you're surprised when shit like this happens. Exactly. And I have some more information. I know it seems like that was super short, but I have some more information about where they were um, and kind of the stats on violence in their community, where they are, and then also indigenous communities. So the president of Pactutit Inuit Women of Canada, Rebecca Kudlow, said that Nunavut's high rates of domestic violence are not new and they are part of, quote, they are, quote, part of the horrific legacy of colonization, relocation of Inuit, and the effects of residential schooling, end quote. So basically what you just said is... And if you factor in residential schools, that is probably a, a lot of the survivors today are still alive and traumatized. I didn't know I think about that in the cycle of abuse. Yeah, well... And when you think about it, too, they were taken and forced to unlearn their culture and learn ours 
but then thrown back into these communities where they're expected on these reserves to live off the land like their ancestors, but they don't know how because they weren't allowed to know how. Like, all the time you hear about how... Like, I remember there was a post about um, a particular community in Ontario that doesn't have clean drinking water and it's on a reserve and people are saying well if they're indigenous they should know how to live off the land and it's like that's not fair to say when you've beaten that out of them they were not allowed to know how to and then they were put back on these reserves and expected to fend for themselves without knowing how because they weren't allowed to know how and also they should still get clean drinking water anyways. Even if they can live off the land, they should still... But that's a whole other topic. Well, even think about it. You and I go to a post-secondary institution where only 30 minutes away, they don't have clean drinking water since early 2000. It's been a decade since they've had clean drinking water and have still been under a boil water order. That makes no sense that only 30 minutes away, there's a fully functioning post-secondary institution with water, with all these various different supports, and then not even 30 minutes away, individuals don't have that same privilege. What is that community called? Do you know? Not on the top of my head, and that's, uh, that's bad on me. I should know, uh. It's within uh, the Missis- uh, Mississaugas of Skookak Island First Nations. I know that is the area. Um, I can't tell you the specific area off the top of my head, but there is a lot of communities listed on there just for Durham region. And then you expand your, your reach to Ontario. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. So at the time of this event, so as the judge had said before, the comment about um, had she had access to resources, this might not have ended that way. Well, there were there was n- nothing. There were no shelters, no safe homes in her uh, community. There was nothing for her. Across Inuit Nunagat, which represents re regions of north of the Northwest Territories, Nunavut and Newfoundland and Labrador. 70% of communities do not have shelters for women and children fleeing violence. Across Inuit communities in these two territories in this one province, most of these communities have nothing for these women and children. They have no support not nowhere for them to go. So this is their only choice is doing what she had to do to protect her family. Without a doubt it was it shouldn't have taken four years for them to acquit her and mm-hmm. for her to have to go that long without having like a life. Um but it does set like a really good precedence for all cases that come forward in that province having to relate to that. And it kind of shows that like this isn't something that's going to fly in the criminal justice system. Mind you, the Canadian justice system shouldn't be the one governing over Indigenous affairs. But that being said, like at least in this case, it, it worked out for her. 
Yes, yeah. At least it worked out for her, for sure. Now, obviously the time is unacceptable. I do believe it's partly due to the fact that she was initially charged with second degree, and then the judge said, no, I won't accept that, and then they kind of had to figure out. But again, that didn't need to take four years. So, Rebecca Kudlow, who I previously mentioned, uh, also said, quote, Women have no place to go if there's no shelter. And up north, in an isolated community, you can't just move to another house because all of the houses are overcrowded, unquote. So that's another factor that we haven't talked about yet, is because, partly because of the land they're living on being harder to live on, People are pretty packed in tight, and families are packed in tight, and that's also due to poverty as well. Of course, there's generations in homes that only have enough room for four people because they can't afford anything else, or the land they're living on is hard to live on. I don't know if that made any sense. (laughs) No, it definitely does, and I think it calls something really, uh, like, another part of this conversation, which is calls to action for all Canadians, because when we see the final report uh, for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, or the report just for Indigenous persons, um, you see all these calls to action for the government. Meanwhile, there's so many calls to action that are for all Canadians, period. And I think that's one thing you could probably leave with your your audience is to read those calls to justice specifically for mirrored and missing indigenous women and girls because there is so much on there like confronting uh and speaking out against racism sexism immigrants homophobia transphobia um even learning lands the simplest thing you can do is learning the lands that you're currently on and the history behind it because it's not enough just to say oh I'm on uh, the Williams Treaty land. It's to know what the Williams Treaty is and what that kind of stands for as somebody who lives in uh, what we call now Oshawa and denouncing Canada as a country by calling it so-called Canada is an act of political activism. And doing your research, man, I think that's how we help communities like this. Yeah, and so I did also look up to see whose land I'm on right now. I'm looking on this map that's native-land.ca where you can specifically search your city and it shows you. It almost looks like there's like four communities that kind of intersect in Peterborough. But based on where I'm zooming in, where I think I am on this map, I believe I am... It's. like it's hard because it's kind of color-coded but it's kind of confusing and I think that's what stops a lot of people from doing this research is like it is very muddied uh whose land you're currently situated on because again Mm -hmm. for settlement um the moving indigenous persons um one thing that really got me was the difference between Anishinaabeg and um oh lord I wish I could remember on the top of my head. There's two primary um, kind of 
coalitions of uh, indigenous persons, um, one of them being in Anishinaabeg, which is what's covered under uh, the lands I'm currently situated on, being in Oshawa. Uh, we're covered under the Williams Treaty again, which includes Algonquin, Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi. Um, and just knowing like what those uh, kind of nations are known for, so specifically that last one, Potawatomi, they're known as like fire keepers and um, being a part of the coalition of three flames, if I'm correct, I could be incorrect. But even just getting that ball rolling and understanding whose lands you're on, one easy way to do it is look at businesses in your area. A lot of businesses or post-secondary institutions have their own kind of land acknowledgement mm. and you can kind of use that as a starting place to start your own research. I know what I know because of Ontario Tech being situated in Oshawa and they do a lot within the Indigenous community. Yes, there there is one, um, I believe it's a hair salon downtown that I've driven past that says whose land we're on, but um, I just want to acknowledge the, I'm seeing about four in Peterborough surrounding area, so I want to acknowledge them all. I might just spell them, two of, oh no, actually it's, sorry, it's three, there's just like, one there's one that's like on either side of another one so it looked like four but anyways um the one i know i can say is mississauga um another one i'm just gonna spell it a n i s h i n a b e w a k i all one word and then the other one that kind of overlaps in Peterborough's surrounding area is W-E-N-D-A-K-E-N-I-O-N-W-E-N-T-S-I-O and the I at the end has the two dots on the top. Um, and those are the three kind of in the Peterborough surrounding area. Yeah. yeah. Just seeing their names and acknowledging them, I think, is the first step. There's a lot of different resources to help you pronunciate, um, but it does take a lot of time and a lot of practice, so I commend you for even looking it up. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought I should acknowledge that while we're on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a couple more... I have a couple more stats um, specifically on um, Inuit communities and Nunavut. So the federal government actually recently announced plans to build five Inuit-specific shelters, which is good news, but it is most definitely not enough. We have three territories, and we have multiple other provinces that go fairly far up north where there's plenty of Inuit people, Obviously, Inuit people can also live anywhere, of course, but these shelters are specific, Inuit-specific in northern communities. Um, So it's great that there's going to be a few, but five is not nearly enough. And over 77% of victims of police-reported crime in 2016 in Nunavut were victims of assault. So... 
all crimes reported to police in 2016, 77% of those victims were victims of assault. And that's all that's just reported. Think of how many cases were unreported or multiple, like, uh, reoccurrences where people are like, well, nothing happened the first time, so I guess I'm not going to report the second. Mm -hmm. And women like Sandra who were too afraid, which is incredibly common. Most, well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of these victims are too afraid. And so in this same year, 2016, there were 7,300 victims per 100,000 people, which is the highest rate amongst all provinces and territories in Canada, which is 13 different provinces and territories, and that is more than seven times the national average. absolutely ridiculous it's unacceptable and we have the power to do something about it as a whole I don't necessarily mean you and I but you and I still have the power to talk about it like this and tell other people and get other people involved and start petitions and contact politicians like it any one person can it's like the butterfly effect. Me telling you and then sharing this with whoever wants to listen can then inspire other people or even just inform them or inspire them to do something, even if that is just looking up whose land they're on and learning about it. It's still like the butterfly effect, like the snowball, it just goes on and can make a difference. And, of course, also all of the discussion about the children, about Cancel Canada Day, about finding all these children, identifying all these children, because a lot of it, too, some of the numbers we're getting are specific mounds where they can see there's remains but haven't been dug up yet. So they could be mass graves. Like, they could be saying... There's a hundred, and what we're hearing is 100, but what we don't realize is there's 100 spots where they have detected remains, but that doesn't mean there's only one body there. And I think this just points to a bigger issue. This isn't new for Indigenous communities. They've known that mass graves like this have existed and then been denied the funds. And I think one thing listeners could do is see if your politician is on the list of people who rejected the bill a couple, not even that long ago, that was asking for funds to to kind of bring these lost children home. So many voted against it, it didn't pass, and they didn't get the funding to be able to start this process. It's not something new in the Indigenous community. They knew that these children were, were, were stolen from them and were somewhere and were rejected. The last residential school closed only in 1996. That's not even that long ago. That's only three years before I was born. That was 25 years ago. Like, it's not that long ago. My parents were in their 30s when it closed. And they're not that old. They're in their 50s now. 
and people so quickly want to call it a thing of the past and the history, and I know I don't need to tell you this, I'm sure you're just as aware as I am, but people just are so determined to pass this off as just another dark chapter in our history, but it's not a dark chapter in history, it's a dark chapter in right now. It is still happening, because they don't know, people still don't know where their children are. And, and continuous genocide of indigenous people to this day, like coerced uh, sterilization of indigenous women in Alberta, uh, starlight walks in British Columbia, that case that we've heard of a woman in um, a Quebec uh, hospital. The healthcare yes. system is against indigenous persons, specifically indigenous women, and that is only one of many. Think of the incarceration rate of Indigenous people, where it's like, I believe it's with it's above uh, 15% of capacity in prisons is Indigenous people, but they only make up like 5% of our population. Some ridiculous statistic like that. I wish I had it in front of me. Um, it's the same as when we talk about issues with uh, pertaining to like the Black population. We see those racialized groups have a very similar struggle in Canada. There's also stuff like um, serial killer Robert Picton. A lot of Ro Robert Picton's victims were indigenous, and that was that tied with a lot of them being addicts and being in sex work is part of how he got away with it for so long because no one had paid attention to the fact that they were missing. I'm trying to find the stat you were talking about. It's something ridiculous. I remember having to look it up uh, when uh, doing my own research, and I, I wish I had it in front of me. I don't know what the specific numbers are. Um, even to tack on that, gender-based violence against Indigenous women is just... It's too high. It's just proportionally higher than other populations. Um, it's around the same as like black trans women, um, as we've noted in like the queer community, how that group specifically deals with a lot more than others, even though they are the backbone of the queer movements. Um, it's just, it all circles back around to colonization. All of this shit is colonization now. So, next I do have some information on the defense she used, uh, battered wife spouse syndrome, often called battered wife syndrome, but I will be calling it battered spouse syndrome because women are not the only ones who are abused. Men are abused and non-binary people are abused as well. So, battered spouse syndrome is considered a subcategory of post-traumatic stress disorder. And people living with this syndrome may feel helpless and trapped and can cause them to wrongly believe they deserve the abuse. And this is often why they don't report the, the abuse. So this obviously very much ties into stuff I said in a previous episode. I believe it was the um, episode I did on Alberta um, about domestic violence in general, this is basically a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that people get 
from intimate partner violence. In 1990, R versus Lavallee was the first case approved to use this defense in Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled that an abused partner did not have to wait to be assaulted again in an act of self-defense, which is very big. Like, a big thing about this defense is these people who kill, it's usually used in murder cases, so these people who kill their abuser, outsiders and defense lawyers often attack them saying, you know, well, he wasn't beating on you at that moment, so why'd you do it? But it's not that simple, not even close to that simple. When you're living with this person who is constantly abusing you, whether it be physical, financial, emotional, spiritual, etc., you are in constant, you are constantly re waiting for next, the next attack. You're constantly in defense mode. So this, the Supreme Court ruling that an abuse partner didn't have to wait until it was happening again to act in self-defense is really big because there's, because of all that, and there's a lot of cases of uh, women who will kill their husband while he's asleep and this works in their favor because there's always a perceived threat of violence for these victims whether the abuser is awake or not it doesn't matter there's still always a perceived threat it can always happen at any time and with these abusers there's often no warning it just happens exactly so the court ruled that the syndrome is a legitimate uh, explanation for self-defense. So there's four stages of overcoming this syndrome or accepting that you have it and you need help. So first is denial. You're unable to accept that they're being abused or justify it. Second is guilt. Believe they caused the abuse. So... Maybe it really is my fault. I shouldn't have made him that mad. Whatever. Three is enlightenment. The victim realizes that they didn't deserve it and acknowledge that they're being abused. And four is responsibility. The victim accepts that only their abuser holds responsibility for the abuse. So this stage is when they start looking into their options, how they can get out. And unfortunately, Sandra only had one. And hopefully, over time, with the announcement the federal government has made and with activism and just talking about it, we can make it so less people are in her situation where their only option is to return the violence. So obviously the syndrome is caused by domestic abuse. The short-term side effects of the syn syndrome include depression, lowered self-esteem, damaged relationships with family and friends, severe anxiety, feeling worthless or hopeless, and feeling like they have no control. Long-term 
effects, which can last for decades, even after they've gotten away from the abuser. Um, there's PTSD-like symptoms, such as flashbacks, disassociative states, and violent outbursts. Um, health issues caused by the stress, including high blood pressure and associated cardiac problems. Health issues from the physical abuse, like damaged joints and arthritis, or chronic back pain or headache, which um, chronic back pain or headache isn't necessarily just the physical abuse, but can also come from stress. And this one actually surprised me a little, a couple of these. Um, increased risk of developing diabetes, asthma, and immune dysfunction, which surprised me um, that abuse could lead to those. Another one, it, it also increases your risk of developing depression, which makes sense, but I was surprised that diabetes and asthma risk could be impacted by this. It kind of makes sense because when you think about it, being in a constant state of distress um, most likely will affect your overall, uh, like, your body and how your body functions. Um, but that being said, diabetes, oh, I thought that was more or less either genetic or um, your sugar intake, question mark? Yeah, I don't know. There's definitely, um, I feel like I should have looked more into it. But I feel like that's definitely a rabbit hole type situation. If you look into it, you might find all kinds of things, you know. So treatment for um, this syndrome and um, intimate partner violence in general. The So the first step is, of course, getting to a safe place. So getting away from them, whether it's a shelter, a hospital a friend's home, a family member's home, co-worker's home, etc. Seeing specifically for the syndrome or PTSD related to abuse, a therapist with experience in domestic abuse and or PTSD should be consulted and have a doctor examine any injuries. And now an important point I want to make um, is, of course, treatment is possible for anyone experiencing this. It's never too late, and you can always move forward with your life. You're never in too deep to get better. In any situation, in any mental health situation, you're never, it's never too late. So, um, next, I want to. I'm going to go over the Canadian resources for victims of domestic violence. Was there anything you wanted to ask or say first? No, I think we really covered a lot of good ground, especially in terms of reconciliation with Indigenous communities and focusing on that violence against women. Um, I think one thing huge is to go over those calls to justice as any Canadian should, um, and kind of unpack what it means to be Canadian, um, especially with the treatment of Indigenous people. But yeah, I'd love to hear those resources get at least as long as it can help one person or... 
yeah. So I have a few Canadian resources. Um, some of them are also American, but I focus on Canadian. So, of course, as I mentioned before, the Hope for Wellness line, one eight five five two four two three three one zero. 242 3310 This is available for all Indigenous people seeking immediate crisis intervention, available 24-7. Uh, you can also live chat with them on their website at hopeforwellness.ca. And they have ca- counseling available in English, French, Cree, Ojibwe, and Inuktitut. And they can help you find resources near you. The Trans Lifeline in Canada is 877-330-6366. Or in the U.S. it's 877-565-8860. And it's Trans Peer Support. Or you can visit their website at translifeline.org. And I will be putting all of these resources in the show notes and in the Instagram post. Kids Help Phone, 1-800-668-6868, is available for ages 5 to 29. And it's available 24-7, confidential and anonymous care, professional counselors. Um, You can text or talk through Facebook Messenger, and there's a live chat on their website at kidshelpphone.ca. And I personally know a couple people who Kids Help Phone really helped um, when they were going through some abuse situations at home. And most of, most if not all of these resources, well, all of these resource, resources aren't just if it's your partner, it can be if it's a parent as well or other situation, just any form of domestic violence at all, they can help you. Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline, 1-800-422-2253. You can text or call them. They're available 24-7, and there's also a live chat available online at childhelp.org. They're multilingual with over 170 languages. They offer crisis intervention and information, including referrals to thousands of emergency social services and support resources, and can help you find stuff close to you. The Canadian Network for the Prevention of Elder Abuse at cnpea.ca, specifically slash en slash what dash is dash elder dash abuse slash get dash help. Canadian Resources Center for Victims of Crime or crcvc.ca. They have information, crisis intervention, counseling, emergency shelters, advocacy, short and long-term emotional support, court preparation, accompaniment through the justice system, information sharing with victims and federally sentenced offenders, and referrals. So they have a lot, and the accompaniment through the justice system and court preparation really stood out to me because that's something in this specific case, and many victims can probably relate to, 
one of Sandra's biggest fears was what would happen if she testified against him. And something like this could have really helped her and or other people going through the situation where they're too afraid to testify. Crisis Services Canada at one eight three three four five six four five six six, or you can text them at four five six four five, or go on their website at crisisservicescanada.ca slash en slash looking dash for dash local dash resources dash support. There's Ending Violence Association of Canada at endingviolencecanada.org. There's LegalLine.ca, My Plan Canada app, which helps you set up your plan, so you're a plan to get away from your abuser. Canadianwomen.org, and the Department of Justice Victim Services Directory, which is, and this is a long one, justice.gc.ca slash eng slash cj dash jp slash victims dash victims with an es slash vsd dash rsv slash agencies dash agencies spelled ces dot as and again, I'm going to post all of this in the show notes so you don't have to try and remember any of the phone numbers or links at all. I'll be posting them. So, the last thing I want to say is my uh, sources were CBC, The Globe and Mail, Statistics Canada, Healthline.com, and Nunasiac.com, spelled N-U-N-A-T-S-I-A-Q, which I believe is an Inuit or at least indigenous run. Yes, so it is an indigenous run newspaper out of Iqaluit in Nunavut. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Disturbed Minds. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow the show on Instagram for show details, pictures, and more.